I'll try not to knock it over. First of all, I'd like to congratulate all of you. You survived the first day. I think. <laughs> Let me ask a question. How many of you at some point today said something to yourself such as, why did I sign up for this? <laughs> How many? Raise your hand. Let's see. Come on. No? No? How many of you at some point today said to yourself in some fashion, I can't do this. This is too hard. I'm too crazy. I'm failing. Hands? One? The rest of you? No? What a unique group. I think you were just afraid to admit it. I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe you're exceptional. But the first day is always, almost always, the hardest day. The first couple days when we come out of our busy lives and come here to retreat and sit down and look at our minds. First of all, there's, our minds are really busy in general. And, and there's the difficulty of sort of getting any perspective on it, on the mind. And then there's the other shock of seeing how crazy you actually are, you know. It's, <laughs> so it can be very difficult these first days. And uh, you survived one. And the reason that we are settling the mind or letting the mind settle and bringing our attention into the breath and into the bodily sensations is not so that we can become mellow people. The real reason is that we are actually learning how to focus the mind and developing this power of mindfulness, this simple observation, so that we can begin to explore and understand ourselves and liberate ourselves. It's really a question of identity. I say that uh, all of Buddha Dharma can be summed up in a knock-knock joke. <laughs> the disciples come to the Master and they say, the master answers with the number one spiritual question, who's there? <laughs> and if you don't get the joke, you have to be reborn over and over and over again <laughs> until you do get it. Just kidding. You don't even have to believe in rebirth. I used to believe in rebirth, but that was in a past life. <laughs> But almost all, almost all esoteric spiritual traditions have as their main question, who am I? The Hopi say, you have to ask yourself three questions. Where did I come from? Where am I going? What am I? Or who am I? Um, 
the Advaita Vedanta, the Hindu Advaita Vedanta masters, would say, who is it that's asking the question, who am I? They keep pulling the rug out from under you. They, are, they, they only have questions, throwing you into the great doubt about who you are. In Zen, they have some colorful ways of framing the question. Who is it that's dragging this corpse around? Who is it that goes in and out of these six sense doors? How we come to understand ourselves in the scheme of things really determines how we feel about our lives and how we treat each other and the environment. So much is wrapped up in how we come to understand ourselves, our identity. The Buddha said, true happiness can only be found by eliminating the false conceit of I or self. Unfortunately, we're all born with a case of mistaken identity. And we go through most of our lives believing we're in here and the world is out there. Always believing that we are acting on the world, rarely recognizing that actually the world is moving through us, that we are one with the world in some sense. It's almost um, a caveat. Self is not bad. It almost comes with the definition of life, that life has a particular sense of its own integrity and boundaries and needs to feed uh, on the world, or some, some part of the world. and It's almost part of the definition of life, of self. It, life is self. But the Buddha found, as a human being, we actually have the ability to see through the membranes of self, through the boundaries of self, and realize that we co-arise with all things, that we are part of all things. It was a great breakthrough, and he, he saw it as the end of suffering. Eliminating the false conceit of I or self. It was really a new identity, a new story. A new story about who we are. I think it's interesting to note that it didn't always feel this way to be somebody. The way we feel. If you asked a, a medieval peasant or a wandering desert nomad, what do you want to do with your life? They wouldn't know what you were talking about. There wasn't that sense that we have of agency, of a kind of freedom, a kind of individual um, uh, ability to create ourselves, our own lives. Um, Rollo May, the psychologist, wrote, Americans cling to the myth of individualism as though it were the only normal way to live, unaware that it was unknown in Middle Ages and would have been considered psychotic in classical Greece. In uh, 
studies of early Greek literature, they found, uh, they believed that the early Greeks believed that all the voices in their heads were the voices of the gods, which we would consider schizophrenic, some kind of, you know, some malady, some craziness. Of course, now we all, we, we believe that all the voices in our heads are ours, <laughs> which is its own form of madness. <laughs> All of life has a sense of self, but we seem to have come to an uncomfortable place of individualism here in the 21st century, here in the land of personalized license plates. <laughs> the story we tell ourselves is all about me, my personal drama. We live in our heads, we live in our psychology, our story, our individual story. We've lost what the anthropologists used to call a participation mystique, a sense of belonging to nature or tribe or community. Something much bigger than your own individual little drama. It's suffocating our individualism and it's the cause of our personal unhappiness and our ecological crisis. You know, I mean, we're alpha species. We can trash, we can use up the planet if we want. I mean, it's just whatever we need to fulfill our fantasies. It's pretty clear that we need a new story. Joseph Campbell says, the old gods are dead or dying and people everywhere are searching, asking, what is the new mythology to be? The mythology of this unified earth as of one harmonious being. Campbell said, we need a myth that will identify the individual, not just with his or her own self, family, or group, but with the whole planet. Lucky for us, we are getting a new story. We are starting to tell ourselves a new story based on science, so it must be true. <laughs> but our new story, for instance, tells us that our bodies are made out of heavy elements formed in explosions of supernova in the early history of the universe. And that uh, our bodies are actually formed out of all natural earth ingredients. Your bones are made of calcium, phosphate, silicates, Essentially, the clay somehow mysteriously molded into your shape. Thich Nhat Hanh says, once I was a rock, once I was a cloud, this is not poetry, this is science. <laughs> Where else could these bodies have come from? we are starting to understand that we are built out of all the life that came before us. The, one of the great discoveries of the 20th century in the 1960s, Dr. Paul McLean at the National Institute of Mental Health was investigating the evolution of the brain and discovered that we don't really have a brain. We have three, three brains. The and they develop in each of us in the same order that they developed in nature. 
We have a reptilian brain, fully functioning inside your skull right now, a fully functioning mammalian brain, and the new human brain or neocortex. And they are not, one brain doesn't grow over the others and sort of override them. And in fact, the brains are kind of intimately interconnected. And there's growing evidence from serious studies that we use our new human brain mostly to make excuses for the behavior generated by the other two brains. <laughs> that we are not so much rational animals as we are rationalizing animals. And that uh, consciousness comes in uh, late in the game to sort of weave whatever we're doing or whatever happens to us into our story. That that's the function of the neocortex. So we're starting to really tell ourselves a new story about who we are. It's a very forgiving story, you know. It, it tells us that we're, we're related to all beings and that, you know, just as that understanding of, of how the, the three brains grow, it's sort of telling us a, a spiritual message that you are not your fault. Mm-hmm. That, you know, you didn't choose to be this being that, you know, came alive in this form with this nervous system, these brains. That it's the result of all these elements coming together in history and cosmology and biology and that you are not the self-created self that you might have thought you were. The, the, the problem is that our new story can kind of stay rusting in the neocortex as some kind of knowledge, some kind of ab- abstract understanding. How do we make it personal? How do we make the new story relevant to our own spiritual lives? our own lives in the world? How do we make it part of ourselves? Alan Watts said, we don't need a new Bible. You know, we need a new experience of what it means to be I or self. And that's where the Buddha comes in. The Dharma comes in. It's a method for revealing our new identity to ourselves. The Buddha laid out the, the whole path in the Satipatthana Sutra where he told us to develop these skills, this ability to focus the mind, this power of mindfulness to simply observe without reacting, and then begin to explore and examine this body, these this breath, these emotions, these thoughts. He was really like a scientist because mindfulness is being as objective as you can be about yourself as the subject. He said, take this ability that we all have and and begin to explore all of the uh, phenomena of your life. And as you explore, ask yourself these questions. This feeling, this thought, this sensation. What is its cause? What is its origin? What is its ancestry? 
Now, he asks those questions not necessarily looking for you to have a, you know, a, a, an answer, you know, kind of a, a, as an anthropologist or biologist. He's asked those questions kind of like koans. Do you own them? Do you own this body? Do you own these thoughts? Do you own this sensation? Did you create it? It's a, it's a way of really discovering what you think is you and if it really is you. A hint. <laughs> the Buddha says as he goes through the different uh, objects of exploration over and over again, he says, this is not mine, this is not I, this is not myself. I, I think of the Buddha as kind of like a naturalist, you know, going into the wil this wilderness of self and kind of taking notes, you know, and, oh, here's an emotion. Now here comes a thought event. Hmm. Bear scat. You know, he, he's, he's just exploring without reacting. Good, bad, judging, no judging. This is what is. This is what, what I'm given. This is part of being human. Just a, a few examples from my own practice over the years. I remember when I first started to practice, as most people will probably relate uh, to this experience, is I started to pay attention to my breath as a concentration object, you know. There it is. It's always there. After a while, it gets kind of boring. And, you know, how can I spice it up? You know, it, breath comes in, it goes out, and comes. But after a while, it, I really started to shift the focus of my attention and began to gain a new sense of identity as alive. The breath was a sign of life. Now, I know you all know that you're alive, right? I mean, that's... But we hardly ever let that fact reverberate in us. We hardly ever feel it. it we, we take it for granted. It's part of one of those things we don't even consider. And yet, it is so much a part of our identity, and it so much defines how we live our lives. I mean, we get this particular span of time where we actually are alive and seem to to all <laughs> to all in, intents and purposes it seem to be alive so the breath began to be more than a concentration object um it also began to teach me that I'm not breathing. Breath is, is breathing through me. Life is breathing through me. That was, a, that was sort of like the first big chunk of, oh, is this me? Is this I? Is this mine? I mean, I could actually hold my breath, right, and faint, and then breath would continue. It's sort of like breath is insisting to continue in me. I, I couldn't stop it if I tried. 
Descartes should have said, I breathe, therefore I am. Because you can breathe without thinking, but you can't think without breathing. It is a central part of our identity, and it's only after I began meditation that it really came alive. And now I often go to it as a, a kind of carrier of the mystery itself, of the, the great mystery of, of all things, you know, and aliveness and awareness, and, and, and there it is. It's always there, the mystery going on inside of me at every moment. My first teacher was uh, the Indian man, uh, S.N. Goenka, master teacher, great, great teacher. And he taught us the body scan where we would scan our mind down through the body over and over again and feeling the sensations, really a meditation on sensations and uh, sometimes on the second foundation of mindfulness of pleasant sensations and unpleasant sensations, neutral sensations. And it was a very po powerful practice um, at times after doing it for several months in retreat. Um, I could feel no solidity at all. I could come to any place in my body. It was just a <laughs> massive tingling sensations. And I, it really started to impact me and, and give me the sense that this body is not a thing. It is a process. It's like a more like a, a flame or a performance or something that it, it's and it's never static. It's always changing. And that was one of the main lessons of the body scan in the focus on sensations is you can feel that change is going on every split second. We would sit there and be scanning through the body and Goenka would be chanting to us in this deep baritone Anicca vata sankara padawaya damino. All things are impermanent. It is their nature to arise and pass away. Happy are those who live closely with this truth. But uh, the, coming into the body like that also started to bring me down from the story of my life again the story of my life to the fact of my life, from the psychology to the biology, I really started to shift identity. I am one of the live ones. I am, I am a breathing being. I mean, the breath, with just a little reflection, you begin, you, you can realize yourself as a, a cell in the great breathing of the planet. And you look out there, and every breath you are exchanging nutrients with the plant kingdom. And... You know, you're really interconnected with that with them. You you owe your life to them. They're the real geniuses, you know, of the of the of the earth. First of all, they just eat the sun, you know, they don't don't they don't have to move around. They take the sun's energy and convert it to starches and sugars and they're they're brilliant. And we have to eat them, of course, to to continue. Or we eat other beings that eat them. You, you know that. But uh, just a little reflection. And, and there again is another sense of identity, of being part of the great atmospheric changes in the hydrosphere. 
So these shifts began to happen, shifts of a sense of who I, who I am. This body, the Buddha said, this body is not mine or anyone else's. It has arisen due to causes and conditions. For now it should be felt. But the Buddha would have gotten along well with Charlie Darwin there, you know. This body has arisen due to causes and conditions. Um, this shape, this form has been carved out of life dancing with the elements of nature over millennia of time. For the first two billion years of life on this planet, there were no legs because there was no land. We are the way we are because, you know, of all those beings that adjusted, grew new camouflage, new ways of mobility in order to survive and exist in the changing nature of the planet. Whether or not you own your body, I mean, or whether the experiences of your body are yours, or, or whether you get to even choose, do you get to think you chose this body? Do you remember a catalog of choices of body types being offered, you know, and <laughs> could you order up a body that could had eyes in the front and the back, or, you know? No, you just get this standard issue, you know? Biped, mid-sized mammal, big forebrain. The body gets tired when it wants to, and hungry when it wants to, and horny when it wants to, and it's sort of like, you know, just about all you can do is sit and be aware of it, and, and you know, decide what's going to lead you to more or less suffering. But it has its own life. It has its own life, and it, you really become aware of that in meditation. So obvious. So as meditators, we really begin to see how much of our experience flows through us and is not necessarily created by us. that happens sometimes even against our will. This was the neuroscientist uh, Melvin Connor. The motivational portions of the brain have characteristics relevant to the apparent chronic nature of human dissatisfaction. Experiments suggest that our chronic internal state will be a vague mixture of anxiety and desire. Best described by the phrase, I want, <laughs> spoken with or without an object for the verb. That that's the brain we get as, you know, a wonderful survival tool, always looking out for opportunities, always looking out for threats. And we have to bow to it because it is looking out for our survival. 
but it keeps us in a constant state of dissatisfaction. It really was, it's really the, the Buddha's second and third noble truth. The second noble truth being the cause of suffering is a mind that is full of desire, that is constantly desiring, that's never satisfied. It's not the fact that you haven't uh, satisfied your latest desire, it's that the, the next one is right on its tail. It's, there's a desire wheel going on. And it's the third noble truth is that you can see this in meditation. You can begin to see it and realize that it's not yours, that it's evolution's wheel of desire. It becomes less personal. You begin to gain some freedom from it. You can name it. It's been seen. You don't have to go. You don't have to follow those ancient instincts. Long before Freud, Buddha understood this. He, he, called, a, he called them underlying tendencies. You, have, you feel something pleasant, you want more of it. You feel something unpleasant, you want it to go away. And it has its uses, but it can be a, a, a terrible master, you know. It can just put, the, the world can just push and pull you around like a puppet unless you see it clearly and actually can begin to gain some understanding of it and not necessarily react to it. It's, it's, really, a, it's really a wonderful... It, it's, it's a, to me at this point, it seems like an essential practice if we are to survive our own uh, aggressive, greedy, crazy, desirous minds. As a species, you know, let alone find a little more happiness as individuals. When we meditate, we become aware also of moods, mind states. It's actually the third foundation of mindfulness. The third foundation is citta nupasana, or uh, mind states, moods, emotions. And as you go through this retreat, you'll start to become more and more aware of how feelings come and go, and how ordinarily in our on our life at home, we hardly ever realize how many emotions are rolling through or how they suddenly appear because we're caught, we're so caught in them, we don't really see them. And here we really can begin to, to look at them and explore them a little bit. Sometime during the retreat, take an hour or two, two hours maybe, or, or the morning and just when you remember check in and see what your mind state is. Your mind state is sort of what you would answer when somebody says, how are you? See how many different ones happen in two hours. You'll be, you'll be amazed and shocked, maybe.
the latest scientific understanding of uh, our cherished sentiments is rather un- unromantic. Uh, in, in a book called The Emotional Brain, uh, Joseph Ledoux, a very famous neuroscientist, says, Emotions are nothing more than the name we give to feelings associated with basic survival functions. The four F's, he calls them. <laughs> Feeding, fleeing, fighting, and procreation, I guess. You know. <laughs> the, the, other, the other one. In that order? <laughs> the... the in, in this view, anger is actually uh, a, a feeling that's associated with protection of a territory or, you know, uh, anger has something to do with making sure you and your offspring are safe. Affection has something to do with the whole family system and, you know, uh, making sure that uh, procreation happens and... Um, you know, what's love got to do with it? You know, it's a, that's sort of the new unromantic scientific view. Um, it really, to sometimes go and take a list how many of your thoughts in a, in a meditation session could be somehow categorized as survival thoughts. You might include, uh, you know, your place in the pecking order, which has a little bit to do with it too, but see how, mu- how much of your brain work is, is work on your own survival. 100%, basically. I mean, you know, of course there's beauty and poetry and stuff like that, but it, it's, uh, it's very, very liberating to see that. Because you start to depersonalize those moods and those impulses. You begin to really, uh, again, name them. You begin to name them. They did a study at UCLA where they would show difficult uh, images to different group, to several groups of people. And one group of people, they taught how to label. And they found that when in that group, when people labeled the difficult emotion that was happening, uh, the amygdala, where a lot of our uh, difficult emotions and traumatic uh, responses and memories are held, that immediately quieted down once the labeling happened. The simple naming of something no longer has the same mastery over us. And, and, and the Buddha's approach to the mind states was very matter-of-fact. No great, no moralizing at all, and no great kind of scheme to get rid of things. One knows, the, the, the instructions are so simple. It says one knows an angry mind is as an angry mind. One, one knows a mind uh, as lustful, Knows a lustful mind is lustful. A mind free from lust is a mind free from lust. And very simple, you know, just notice what's going on. That in, in itself begins to free you.
maybe the most profound uh, shift in my own life over years of practice has been my relationship to my thinking mind. We're still friends, but uh, <laughs> and we we live together, but we we're no longer we're no longer so codependent, you know. I may have actually started meditating because I. I perceived that my mind had a thinking problem. <laughs> Start thinking the minute I got up in the morning, and I had to think in the middle of the afternoon. I had to have a couple thoughts before I went to bed at night. You know, it was just <laughs> needed an intervention. But it's so interesting when we really come and sit down and start to to look at look at the way it works and realize that most of our lives are run by the fact that we can we really believe in every everything that runs through our mind we believe in it we're true believers this is tulku ergen famous tibetan teacher the stream of thought surges through the mind of an ordinary person often called dark diffusion. In this state, there is no knowledge whatsoever about who is thinking, where the thought comes from, where the thought disappears. One has not even caught the scent of awareness, and the person is totally and mindlessly carried away by one thought after another. I, and, and so much of our, our culture, you know, we really believe in, in thinking, but we believe in people's ability to move the contents of thought around and in intellect and uh, in uh, reason. Not that that's bad, but uh, we never really look at the process of thinking. We look at the content. In meditation, we begin to examine thinking as an event, as a pulse. We can just feel the mind keeps pulsing out these these concepts, these ideas that are nothing really but just firing of synapses in the brain due to some kind of cause. Who knows? I mean, all sorts of causes and conditions creating a thought. But you, we, don't have to, we don't have to let ourselves get carried away by them so much when we, re, when we really start to see how they work. I mean, thoughts... And, and it's really a mistake to think thoughts are bad. Thoughts are wonderful. We, we love thoughts. They allow us to, you know, store information and pass it along to others. And it's, they're, they're, they're a great invention. You know, we agree on these certain symbols and, and, and what they mean. And we've coded them and given them sounds. Wonderful. But it's a cruel master if we don't see beneath them. This is Darwin from his secret notebooks. Why is thought, which is a secretion of the brain, deemed to be so much more wonderful than, say, gravity, which is a property of matter? It's only our arrogance, our admiration of ourselves. Stephen Jay Gould says, an octopus doesn't go around being proud of its eight arms. <laughs> What they are saying is that this is a product of evolution, and it's a wonderful, you know, tool. But uh, it's a local adaptation, you know. It's 
the Buddha always saw the mind, the thinking mind, as a sixth sense. Not not elevated any any more than sight or sound or smelling. A way of understanding, a way of noticing uh, changes. Sometimes uh, I try to imagine what what our ancestors' thoughts were 20,000 years ago, 30,000 years ago. I wonder who's going on the hunt tomorrow. What color should I paint my spear? <laughs> who's watching the fire? Basically, we're still thinking about the same things, you know? <laughs> so I just want to close by saying that, you know, that's... One of the reasons that we're developing this, these tools, especially the first day or so of a retreat, uh, the ability to focus and hold the mind, to concentrate the mind, and the, the wonders of mindfulness where we can simply observe what's happening without our usual reactions, gives us the ability to really explore this sense of identity and who we really are and what we... What is I, me, and mine? And uh, to really, I think, begin, we will begin to shift our sense of identity to, to a more inclusive one. Uh, you know, it, your individual psychological drama is that yours alone, whereas the breath and body are shared with all humans and your breath with all mammals and you know you you start to see your how connected you are to things you're you're not you're out of the the story of your life you're into the fact of your life and you begin to sense things in a different way sense your interconnection and you can begin to wonder and marvel at the mystery of awareness itself. What is that? We are beings that know of ourselves and know of the world and ourselves in the world. It's a magical kind of quality that seems to be ours alone. Wondrous. The awareness knows of whatever appears before it. But we'll get to that a little bit later in the retreat, maybe. So, thank you for being here and doing this. You know, this is part of our collective awakening. Uh, As a species, you know, it's 2,500 years since the Buddha, Lao Tzu, and Socrates. We're just a blink of an eye away biologically. Essentially, we just got these big brains. We don't know quite how to use them well yet. We're starting to learn. This is an awakening exercise that we're all doing. We're doing it for each other as as members of a particular species at a particular moment in our evolution. And so we can thank each other because, you know, it's all going into the common, the common, uh, heritage.
Let me just uh, close with a little line here from D.H. Lawrence. Local boy. Our task in the coming era is to relocate ourselves in the cosmos and to renew our kinship with all of earth life. It is time to join again in the dance drama of biological and cosmic evolution. In short, to regain some humility and find our life's meaning not in individual accomplishment, but in our shared existence. Time to join again in the dance drama, biological and cosmic evolution. So let's dance. Let's sit quietly for a minute before we go walk. Congratulations again and uh, enjoy your walking. If I could uh, invite all the people who have signed up to be a bell ringer, uh, for those who have not been trained in that particular uh, art. art. Uh, if we could meet at 8.05 at the bell on the end of the porch here, the west end of the, the front porch of the lodge, uh, we'll do that. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.